You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, beloved, there is a wrong way to pursue righteousness. That's my introduction. There is a wrong way to pursue righteousness. I'm kind of kidding that that's my introduction, but kind of not, because it is a jarring statement. How could pursuing righteousness be wrong? Let's look in our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. As you're turning there, we're going to be looking this morning pointedly at verses 27 to 33, but let me sketch a little bit of context. This is useful for you if you've not been a part of the series throughout, but it's also useful for all of us as we continue to remind ourselves of what Paul has written so that we might better understand the letter. The beginning of Romans 9, Paul expresses his heartfelt grief for his kinsmen according to the flesh, for his fellow Israelites. He is burdened for them. He is grieved on their account because they have not, by and large, trusted Christ. They have not trusted Jesus, the Messiah. Now, Israel's rejection of Jesus seems to indicate that one of two things is true. That either God does not keep his promises, all of these wonderful redemptive promises that he has made to Israel. What about those? Or perhaps Jesus is not the Messiah. Perhaps another needed to come. And so Romans 9 through 11 is Paul's defense of the truthfulness of God's word. It's Paul's defense of the trustworthiness of God's promises. It is Paul's defense of the faithfulness of God himself. And it's Paul's defense and re-articulation of the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah. The word of God has not failed. The Lord has always saved his people. When it comes to God's purpose of election, it is to accomplish salvation. It is to show that he is a redeemer, that he is the savior It is to show that salvation is all of his grace and all of his mercy. His purpose is to show that he alone is the ground of all of his goodness and his mercy and his grace toward mankind because there could be no other ground. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 9 to demonstrate that in electing some and passing by others, God is in no way unjust. Mercy is a particular display of the grace of God. And though no guilty creature could ever deserve mercy, the Lord gives mercy freely in a way that is consistent with his perfect wisdom. He is the creator. He has made All mankind, some are born again and turn from themselves to Christ in faith and are saved. And others go on trusting themselves and will face judgment. What makes the difference? God makes the difference. God is the savior of sinners. In all the purposes of God and salvation and judgment, the riches of his glory are displayed pointedly in vessels of mercy who are just as deserving of judgment as the rest of mankind. And these things, as we have acknowledged, are above us. And we conclude with Paul, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable are his ways. And so we continue this morning in Romans chapter 9. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be considering verses 27 to 33, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 22 for us. So 
Put your eyes now on the word of God and listen as I read. This is the word of the Lord. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan is to preach the message in three parts, and we'll take them one at a time. Part one will be brief, and I'm trying to continue to set the context for us. Part one is this. Remember, the word of God has not failed. Just wanting to keep that on our radar screen. Part one, remember, the word of God has not failed. You can put your eyes briefly on verse 24 where Paul is talking about how God has saved us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul is continuing to demonstrate that God's promises can be trusted and that his word has not failed. After he had expressed his grief for his fellow Israelites, Paul had argued in verses 6 and following of Romans 9 that the promise had not been made to Abraham's physical descendants. but that, in fact, the children of promise were a different group of people that would be saved by the Lord. And here, he states, even in verse 24, who the children of promise are, who the spiritual children of Abraham are, that is, all of us whom God has called, from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Having established this, Paul proceeds to write of what had been foretold about the salvation of the Gentiles and about the salvation of a remnant of Israel. In verses 25 and 6, regarding the Gentiles, Paul cites the prophet Hosea regarding the fact that God would save the nations. He would save Gentiles. Once, you weren't a people, but now in Christ, You're God's people. What Paul is doing is applying to the Gentiles what was spoken to the Israelites by the prophet. Once you weren't beloved, but now in Christ you are beloved of God. Once you were called not my people, but now you are called sons of the living God. The point of all of this is the following. That God has not failed to keep a single one of his promises. He has not failed in any way to accomplish all of his plans to redeem. He has saved every single one of his people. He's not lost any. There will be no empty seats in heaven. From all of time, all of the elect Jews and all of the elect Gentiles have been, are being, and will be saved. That's the message. God is their Savior, 
and he's faithful to accomplish their salvation. That's part one. Part two, a remnant of Israel would be saved. Part two, a remnant of Israel would be saved. We're going to look at verses 27 to 29 for the next several moments. Paul, as I've already alluded to, had cited Hosea pertaining to God's purposes with the Gentiles. And in these verses, Paul cites the prophet Isaiah at two different points regarding the salvation of a remnant of the Jews. In verses 27 and 28, Paul cites Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. The context there is a prophecy of judgment against sinful Israel at the hands of the Assyrians. It's the context of Isaiah 10. Though the number of the nation of Israel was vast, only a remnant would be saved from judgment. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. In verse 29, Paul cites Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9. There, in Isaiah, the prophet is announcing the wickedness and the sinfulness of Judah, and thereby the judgment of God that they deserve. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If the Lord had not been merciful, right? If the Lord had not left a few survivors, if the Lord in his grace had not saved a remnant of us, there wouldn't be any of us. That's the message. Paul's point here is that the salvation of only a remnant of the Jews had been foretold by the prophets. Let's pause for just a moment. All is a part of part two. Let's consider Paul's use and understanding of Isaiah. This is one of those times that it's important for us to pause and take note and learn better how to read and understand the scriptures. Isaiah was writing of national judgment that would come on the people of Israel. Judgment that they would face as a result of their sin. He was writing of exile and captivity at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And of the subsequent return from that exile by a small remnant of the Jewish people. That's what the prophet was literally writing about. And yet, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, applies this to spiritual realities. Of all the vast multitude of the nation of Israel, only a remnant of them were to be the true Israel of God, and thereby saved. So, whatever fulfillment these prophecies had in the era of the old covenant, this, these spiritual realities, are the full and correct meaning of those prophecies, according to the Apostle Paul. That is not my idea. That's not some theologian's idea. That is the Scriptures speaking, that this is how we should interpret and understand prophecy. Consider this. All of the great events of redemption, all of the great events of deliverance that happened to and for the Jewish people were types and shadows of the great work of redemption that Jesus would come and accomplish. That's the point of all of them. You name the one, the Passover, the Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, manna in the wilderness, the crossing of the Jordan, entrance into the promised land, return from captivity and exile. They were all pointing to what Christ the Savior would come and do for all of his people. There is first a temporal and literal fulfillment of prophecy. Then there is an eternal and spiritual fulfillment through Christ in the gospel. The prophesied events of Israel's history illustrate and typify the spiritual things of the kingdom of Christ. This is the right way to read and understand the scriptures. 
This is the pattern and the understanding of the apostles. This is the pattern and the understanding of Jesus. This is the pattern and the understanding, for that matter, of all of the saints of God through history. Consider this. Have you ever, in reading Hebrews 11, I'm going to read it in just a second. Have you ever considered this thought? That ultimately, the promises were not about Canaan, living an abundant life in that land. The promises were about something far greater, and the saints have always known it. Consider this. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. These all, talking about the patriarchs and all of those early generations of God's people, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, Canaan, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Abraham, right, rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. And he saw it by faith. He was glad. You see, it was never about Canaan. It was never about that land. It was never ultimately about living an abundant life on that piece of earth. It's about the new heavens and the new earth. It's about salvation unto life with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth by faith in the Christ of God. That's what the promises have always been about. It's important for us to see that in verses 25 to 29 of Romans 9, Paul is demonstrating that the grafting in of Gentiles into the body of Christ, along with a remnant of the Jews, had been foretold by the prophet. It had always been the plan of God. And God has done what he said he would do. He's kept his word. Just very briefly before we move on into part three, look at verse 29 again. Paul quotes Isaiah. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. As I said a minute ago, if, if the Lord had not been merciful, if the Lord had not been gracious, there wouldn't be any of us. We'd be all done. As we've made our way through Romans 9 in recent weeks, I've said this, I, the weight of the chapter the loftiness of these truths is not lost on me as a man, as a Christian, as a pastor, as a preacher. The doctrine of God's unconditional election of individuals to eternal life is certainly objected to by many people. And it is seen by many people to be contrary to God's goodness and contrary to God's love but in fact, as we look at the scriptures, the opposite is true. If not for this election, grounded sheerly in mercy, sheerly in grace, if not for this election, not one person from all of the nation of Israel would be saved. If it were not for this grace and this election, this mercy, not a single Gentile would be saved. None of us would be here this morning were it not for this sovereign grace. The doctrine of election is anything but cruel or harsh, and shame on Christians and shame on preachers who make it sound that way. The doctrine of election is a powerful demonstration of the goodness and the love of God. Had it not been for God's election, through which he has prepared beforehand vessels of mercy for glory, not a single Jew or Gentile would ever have escaped wrath. We would all remain vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. 
as has been observed by other saints before me and before us, in the case of fallen angels, there is no election. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. There is no mercy. There is no grace. There is no redemption. And so all of the angels that rebelled against God are cast into hell. No pardon. No salvation. If there was no election amongst mankind, the entire human race would perish the exact same way. So our posture, even as we seek to grapple with the scriptures and understand these truths, our posture is one of humility, certainly, and one of gratitude. Thank God that he has saved so many. Thank God that he saved us. And he will save more should Jesus tarry. Praise be to his name. And we'll get into this later, especially as we get into chapter 10. There is no contradiction whatsoever in God's sovereign grace in the preaching of Christ indiscriminately to all men. There is no contradiction in the sovereign grace of God and praying for the salvation of everyone we know and love and working to that end. He is a God of means, not just ends. We'll be talking about that more in weeks to come. His wisdom is unfathomable, and he is good. Thus concludes part two. Part three. This will be, as the people who are used to me will know, that this will be the longest of the three parts based upon the time and where we are. Part three. The wrong way and the right way to pursue righteousness. Part three, the wrong way and the right way to pursue righteousness. We're going to look at verses 30 to 33. These verses are striking. May the Lord continue to open our eyes to the truths of his law and his gospel. So in verses 30 to 33, Paul asks and then answers a question. Put your eyes on verse 30 at the very beginning. You see the question. What shall we say then? What shall we say to all of this? And it is striking where he goes. Allow me to summarize where he goes, and then we'll look at it in more depth. Paul says, what do we say? We say this. The Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness. They were not seeking for it. And God gave it to them by faith. But Israel, who pursued righteousness according to God's law, did not attain righteousness because they were seeking to establish their own righteousness under the law through their works. Israel has stumbled over the stumbling stone. That is, they have stumbled over Jesus. They've rejected him. They've misunderstood the law, its purpose, and its standard. And they've misunderstood thereby the kind of Messiah they needed and what he would come to do. All of this was predicted by the prophets. Many Israelites did reject the Messiah, but not all of them. Some believed in Jesus. Those referred to by Paul in verse 24, along with believing Gentiles, and these all who believe in the Christ have been saved by him, and they will never be put to shame. So let's not mince words here. To the wisdom and the ways of human beings, nothing appears more absurd or unreasonable than what I'm about to say. That the Gentiles who were not pursuing righteousness, have been called by God to receive righteousness and salvation. And that Israel, who labored after works of the law, has not partaken in that righteousness or that salvation. This lands on us as absurd and unreasonable because we don't do well with mercy 
We don't do well with grace. Those things, mercy and grace, are not our natural currency. They are not the capital that we trade with on the regular. We do a lot better in our human reasoning with law and merit than we do grace and mercy. Put your eyes again on verse 30. The Gentiles, of course, these are the Gentiles who have been saved. I trust that goes without saying. The Gentiles did not pursue righteousness. He says this. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. And then he qualifies that. He explains how. The righteousness that they have attained is a righteousness that is by faith. Now you realize that the Gentiles could never have attained something that they were not seeking if God had not sought them. They could never have attained something they were not pursuing if God had not pursued them. They didn't know God's law. We're not talking about Israel who had been given the law. We're talking about the nations who did not know Yahweh and his law. They did not know that they needed righteousness according to the law. So God pursued them. He pursued them how? Through the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word of Christ, through the spreading of the good news as the disciples of Christ went out from Jerusalem. And God, through the preaching of his word and through the heralding of the message of Christ, convinced the Gentiles of the standard of the law. He convinced them of their need. And he showed them the Savior and united them to Christ by faith. So in other words, for these Gentiles, for us sitting here today, God gave them faith and gave them righteousness. He gave them salvation by his own grace and mercy. The righteousness of these redeemed Gentiles depends on God's mercy, not on their own worthiness. Now for all the saints of God, what is written of the Gentiles in verse 30 is true of us. Not pursuing righteousness, not looking for it. Now, what I'm saying right now is obviously true. In a room this size, what I'm saying right now is obviously true for those of us converted later in life. Wasn't looking for righteousness, wasn't pursuing it. But it's also true for those of us who grew up in a Christian home. Track with me. Those of us who grew up in a Christian home were interested in the things that all kids are interested in. Distracted by bad things, but also distracted by good things, as all kids are. Being taught the faith, growing in wisdom, learning some things about God, learning things about his law, learning things about the gospel. And because God is faithful, at some point, he arrested us on our way to hell. You see, being born in a Christian home is a way that God seeks and saves his people. It's a means that he uses. This is why we talk like we do at our church, where we want to bring our children up into what we're doing. Because God works this way. This is God's way of seeking and saving his own by having many born into Christian homes to Christian parents even. God seeks us that he might save us and give us righteousness that we never would have pursued on our own. By his spirit, through his word, he drives the holy standard of his law home to our hearts. That the standard of the law is perfect obedience at a spiritual level. He convicts us that we're sinners in a way that we never understood before. Anything that we thought we brought to the table, we realize it's worthless. 
And by his spirit, through the message of Jesus, he opens eyes. See, he imparts faith. He grants repentance and he gives us righteousness. So rather, or excuse me, regardless of whether or not you were converted later in life or whether or not your testimony is that of, you know, I was born to Christian parents and I don't remember a time that I didn't mean to trust Jesus. This is still true of you. The Lord taught you and saved you and he used various means to do it. Praise be to our merciful God and our gracious Redeemer. Look at verse 31. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued literally a law of righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. They did not attain to the righteousness they pursued. They did not attain to the righteousness of the law. Why? Look at verse 32. Because, says Paul, they did not pursue it by faith. They did not pursue it. It is righteousness. They did not pursue the righteousness of the law by faith, but as if it were based on works. I'm just going to say that again. What Paul is saying is pointed. The Jews, the Israelites, by and large, did not pursue the righteousness of the law by faith, but as if the righteousness of the law were based on their works. Two really important statements I'm about to make. So if you're a note taker, write these down. They would be worth noting. The first statement is this. The righteousness of the law is attained by faith. It is based on faith. The righteousness of the law is attained by faith. It is based on faith. Next statement. The law was not given so that we might do its works and thereby attain righteousness. I'll repeat that. The law was not given so that we would do its works and thereby attain righteousness. Now, we're going to be thinking very pointedly and in great depth about these things again next week, Lord willing, from Romans 10, 1 to 4. But for now, let's consider. The righteousness of the law is based on faith and is attained by faith. This is because the righteousness that meets the demands of the law of God is God's righteousness that is given to sinners by faith. So think back to Romans 1.17. You remember how we rejoiced there over what Paul is saying the gospel is. In the gospel, the righteousness of God, not God's attribute of righteousness, but the righteousness that God gives to sinners is revealed, and it's entirely of faith. Romans 1, verse 17. The only righteousness that meets the demands of God's law is the very righteousness that he gives to sinners that's received by faith, which is why we say that the righteousness of the law is received, it's attained by faith. The righteousness of the law is based on faith and is attained by faith also because Jesus kept the law. And through faith in him, his perfect law-keeping is counted to us. What I'm about to say is just a, it's an anecdote about our family, and this is not prescriptive in any way. But we try to keep things relatively simple often in terms of ways that we engage spiritually, just given the, the pace of life and things like this. And so we have, over the course of time, come up with our own series of questions that we will ask and answer before bedtime every night. The kids have now dubbed it the, the five questions. Dad, can we do the five questions? And we always do. The five questions and answers are these. The first one is, why do you need Jesus? The answer, for, for, for the forgiveness of my sins, for righteousness, and for eternal life. Question two, what did Jesus do for you? He died on the cross for my sins, he kept the law for me, and he rose from the dead for my justification. Question three, 
can you keep the law? The answer is no. Now, the kids object all the time because they say the answer needs to be longer. So we might add some like Heidelberg 60 words to that at some point. But for now, can you keep the law? No. Question four, then how are you righteous before God? Answer, only by faith in Jesus Christ. Question five, but how are you righteous by faith? Answer, because Christ's righteousness is counted to me. That's gospel. That's how a sinner would ever attain righteousness. That's how a sinner would ever have righteousness. By faith in the only righteous one who kept the law every minute. That's what Paul is saying. That message of the imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ counted to us, is not man's idea. This is God's gospel. Cannot be stated enough, and we're going to get to rejoice in it more next week. I also stated, though, that the law was not given so that we might do its works and thereby attain righteousness. And notice I did not say that the law was not given so that we might look to it as the guide of our living. We do look to the law as the guide of our living. I did not say that the law was not given to us so that we might look to it and seek to obey it. We do seek to obey it. The issue is we don't obey it for righteousness before God. That's the thing. Why did God give the law? There's more than one answer to that question, but I'll frame it this way. What is the law's first and greatest use? If you've been here for a period of time, you might be anticipating the answer. And if that's true, that's good. Why then the law? Galatians 3.19. It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was given because of sin until the Savior came. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law shuts our mouths. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. How do I know I'm a sinner? Because God drives his holy law home to my heart by the power of his spirit, and I'm wrecked. Romans 5.20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. Romans 7.13, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Taking all of those texts and our text today into consideration, the first and greatest use of God's holy law comes clearly into view. And that is to show us our sin and drive us to the Christ who kept the law for us. Praise God. There are other uses of the law, but that is the first and greatest one. May we never lose sight of it. Many Israelites, as we look in our text today, had missed this. They had misunderstood the law, had misunderstood its purpose, had misunderstood its standard, and they sought to establish their own righteousness under the law rather than looking to Christ in faith, who is the only one who's ever kept it. As it stands, second portion of verse 32, they have stumbled over Jesus rather than choosing him to be the ground of their hope, rather than choosing him to be the solid rock upon which they would build their house, they sought to build the house themselves. They sought to keep the law themselves. And they looked for a different kind of Messiah. And they rejected Jesus. Continuing to reflect and apply on these great truths, It is those who trust in their works that stumble over Jesus. It is those who trust in their works who stumble over Jesus. John Calvin wrote these words. But how they stumble at Christ who trust in their works, it is not difficult to understand. For except 
We own ourselves to be sinners, void and destitute of any righteousness of our own. We obscure the dignity of Christ, which consists in this, that to all of us, he is light, life, resurrection, righteousness, and healing. But how is he all these things except that he illuminates the blind, restores the lost, quickens the dead, raises up those who are reduced to nothing, cleanses those who are full of filth, and cures and heals those infected with diseases. Nay, when we claim for ourselves any righteousness, we in a manner contend with the power of Christ himself. So here it is, beloved. When it comes to salvation, the great human problem is that we trust our works. When it comes to salvation, the great human problem is that we trust ourselves. That I can be righteous or that I already am, that I am good or can be good enough. That is our problem. This is true for people who have no interest in God. And it is true for all of us, even as we approached God in our own understanding. We always seek to weave our works into the fabric of salvation. We do. Church history bears this out. Seeking to attain or secure or actualize salvation through our own law-keeping is antithetical to the gospel. The gospel through which we receive salvation by faith in Christ with an open hand. Nothing in my hands I bring, right? This is why faith and works are so often contrasted in the scriptures. They are completely contrary to one another. Our text today, along with so many others in the Bible, indicates that trusting in our works is the chief obstacle in our way to obtaining righteousness. Trusting in the merit of our works is our greatest hindrance to salvation. This is why, as has been said by so many, we must wholly, completely, entirely, utterly, you pick your modifier, we reject any kind of trust in our works for our righteousness before God. We reject it. And my, how we struggle with this. You look at verses 30 and 31 of our text today and think of what is described there. That the nation of Israel was following after the law. They were pursuing righteousness. They were trying. They had great zeal. Yet God, instead of giving them righteousness, gave it to people who weren't even looking for it. Who hadn't worked for it. My, how the self-righteous heart rises up. God, how could you do it this way? My, how the moralistic, legalistic heart rages and revolts against the grace of God. How could God bestow salvation like this? When we claim any righteousness for ourselves and we place any confidence in our works, I don't want you to necessarily take my word for this. What is it that we effectively do when we seek to claim righteousness for ourselves or place confidence in our works? Robert Haldane says when we do that, we attempt to dethrone the Almighty and to undeify God. John Calvin says when we do that, we in our furious madness carry on war with God himself. I don't know if you've ever thought about it like that, that you and I and the ways that we seek to claim righteousness for ourselves or trust in things that we do is actually waging war on the grace of God and the way that he saves. The sum of the matter, beloved, as far as the scriptures are concerned, is contained in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. In those verses, the apostle Paul writes, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's the sum of the matter. 
that Jesus is all of that. He is wisdom from God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom indeed. And Jesus is the wisdom of God. Reverence toward God and wisdom from God are all wrapped up in faith in Jesus. Jesus is righteousness for us as we confess often here. He is our whole and only righteousness by faith. His suffering in our place, his obedience in keeping the law in our place is counted to us as our whole and only righteousness. Whole meaning it's all we need. Only meaning it's the only kind we'll ever have. Jesus is our sanctification. This blows our minds. Because we often think, I trust Christ and I'm justified, and then sanctification's different. Jesus is our sanctification as well. Because we have been united to him, we will be sanctified. He will work in and through by the power of his spirit to change our lives. Connected to the living vine, we will bear fruit. Jesus, as we've rejoiced over in Romans 6, is the source of our sanctification. Jesus is the fountainhead of holiness. The stream of sanctifying grace will never dry up as long as that fountain flows. And beloved, that fountain flows strong forever. Jesus is redemption for us. We are lawbreakers. And he endured the curse of the law in our place. We are lawbreakers, and he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law in our place. We are in bondage to Satan, and he crushed that serpent's head. He bound that strong man and plundered all of his goods through the victory that he won on the cross. We are enslaved to death and the fear of the grave. And when Jesus got up on a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, he kicked death in the teeth and he conquered the grave. In other words, saints, Christ is all. He is all. He is our only hope and stay. My one defense, my righteousness, he's all of that. He's all that we need for our salvation. He is our salvation, meaning the entire thing. We believe in him. We trust in him. We hope in him. We boast only in him. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Put your eyes on verse 33. Paul had just written that many of his fellow Israelites had stumbled over the stumbling stone, and he now again cites Scripture to demonstrate that he isn't coming up with some new thing. The stumbling of the Jews over Jesus, the rock of offense, was also predicted by the prophets. Isaiah 8, 14. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. That's what the prophet wrote. Now, just quick note, I like to do this when possible. The he of Isaiah 8.14, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense. The he is the Lord. He in that verse is Yahweh. And Paul here clearly applies this to Jesus. In other words, Jesus is God. And it's testified not just in the New Testament, but in the Old as well. Let that encourage your heart this morning. Paul also Cites Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Then, of course, there's Psalm 118, 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is represented as a stone and a rock and a cornerstone in the language of the prophets. You might ask yourself, what do those images convey? Much that we could say, but for now, these images convey the fact that salvation rests on him. 
that he bears its weight. Just like a cornerstone, he he bears the weight of salvation. He is the foundation of it that gives the whole building its structure, its integrity. And in another sense, he's something to stumble over. Many won't have him. They reject him. Many fall on him to their own destruction. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And don't miss this last piece. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It is upon the rock of Christ that all the saints from all of time have rested and have found their security. All those that the Lord has called, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles, have been led to the rock that is higher than them. They have fled. All of us have fled to the rock of ages cleft for us. He is their sanctuary. He is their refuge. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It is true that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for many people. It is true that those who fall on him will be dashed to pieces by him in judgment. It is true, as the Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote, that outside of Christ, God is terrible. But for the saints, for those of us who have casted ourselves upon Jesus for forgiveness and righteousness, and eternal life. There is not a single reason that we should dread him. There's not a single reason for that matter that we should dread anything. There is nothing to fear for those who trust in Christ. He has loved us. He has sought us. He has found us. He has saved us. He holds us. He protects us. He nourishes and sustains us, even through what we're doing this morning. He will bring us to be with him forever. Here, we have a firm foundation. Here, the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation. His the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded. Sacrifice to cancel guilt. None, none shall ever be confounded who on him their hope is built. Let's pray.